God, we praise you. Uh, we, we are so thankful this morning. We're here just celebrating that you love us. Lord, what greater thing to steep our hearts in, to remind ourselves of, than the love you have. God, this love is worth singing about. It's worth celebrating. Remembering that though we're far from you, we had turned from you, you came running after us, and you did send your son Jesus into this world. God, he was willing to identify with us, to take our sins upon himself, and then to die in our place. God, this morning... As you take us into your gospel deeper, would it ravish our hearts? Would it undo us in your presence? God, we're so thankful and our hearts are joyful. As we turn now and look to your word, we just want to know you more. God, we just want to know what it means truly to experience you by faith, to take steps with you in this life, knowing that we're in the arms of Jesus, that our Savior, that we're singing about, that we're praising, that he holds us. Lord, that that's our hope. So, Lord, fill us this morning with the hope, with the encouragement that comes from your scriptures. Lord, and as you promise, watch over your word, attend your word, and perform the work in us through your word. We look to you. We need you. We ask you to have your way in this place. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Hey, at this time, if you're a kiddo, you've been checked in, you can head to the back and... Uh, For everybody else, I want to invite you to take your Bible out and open to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, feel feel free to grab one in the back uh, uh, and and, and take it and turn to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. And this morning we're just going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. 13. All right, this is God's word to us. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. 
And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is God's word. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, really actually growing up my whole life, I, I went, to, went to this camp. Um, but this specific story is kind of related to my last year. So the very last year that I went to this camp, you know, all growing up, at the end of the two-week session, one camper from each age group would be given an award. And the award that they would give out at the end of every two weeks for each age group was the award of Honor Camper. Um, Honor Camper was this um, display that you had excelled. It was a display that you had exhibited leadership. But I think more than anything else, what winning Honor Camper meant is that the counselors had recognized you. They had seen you. They had seen how you had excelled above everybody else in your age group. And so my last year at this camp, uh, kind of going out through, throughout the two weeks, I just knew that I had won Honor Camper. I mean, it was like, you know, it was in the bag. Uh, and so the, the guy who's our leader gets up, and, and it's time for him to give the award, and he begins recounting the characteristics of the honor camper. And as he's talking, I'm getting more and more confident. You know, I'm like, this is me. You know, I, I led people well. You know, I served other people. I was always having a good attitude, even when other people didn't have a good attitude. As he begins to describe who this honor camper is, I'm just sh- sure, I'm sure that he's talking about me. And so when he finally gets ready to announce who, who the person is, I mean, it's like my, my, my legs are ready to jump up out of my seat to receive the award. And he says, the honor camper for this two-week session goes to Daniel hide. And it was immediately as if I had been this balloon that had been blown up and up and up and up and someone just took a little pin and just popped it and I just went back down to size. I felt so small. I felt so insignificant. In that moment, honestly, I felt so embarrassed that I had cared so much about this and that I had thought that, you know, obviously it was, it was me. Uh, there's something inside all of us that longs to be recognized. There's something in us that, that wants to be respected by others. Even if you're the kind of person who's not necessarily interested in being publicly recognized in front of a big group of people, uh, at the least, uh, none of us want to be forgotten. And even at worst, none, none of us want to be blamed for something that we didn't do. Right? There's this something in us that we, we want our reputation to be seen as a good thing. We want other people to see us and know us and recognize us and respect who we are. And this presents uh, somewhat of a tension for Christianity. See, on the one hand, uh, everybody wants to be respected, everybody wants to be honored, everybody wants to be seen in a certain high esteem, but Christianity actually calls us to a life of humiliation. Christianity calls us to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, and in following Jesus, there is shame. In following Jesus, there is embarrassment, there is foolishness. And so it creates this tension. On the one hand, we long to be respected. We long to be honored. We long for other people to look at us and hold us in high esteem. And yet following Jesus means shame. It means embarrassment. It means humiliation. And so what is the way forward? Uh, In today's passage in Esther chapter 6, the word honor appears seven times. The word honor appears seven times. And the reason Esther chapter 6 is in the Bible is to invite us in to see That though there may be shame in trusting God at at, at a certain point, that eventually, if we trust God, if if our hope is in Him, then that shame that comes with trusting Him will give way to glory. Uh, The reason that Esther chapter 6 is in the Bible is to to teach us an important aspect of something that we call glorification. 
Glorification. We're going to be using that word all throughout the sermon. Glorification. Why use that word? Well, first and foremost, we use the word glorification because it's in the Bible. And when the Bible talks about glorification, here's the crazy thing. It, it's actually talking about God glorifying us. That's uncomfortable. That feels odd. That seems backwards. But we need to press in to what God has to say about our glorification because the very fact that God glorifies us only sheds even more light on how great he really is, on how loving he really is, on how good he really is. So uh, maybe, maybe you would think of glorification like this. Um, I, I'm sure most of you in here know what it means to be beautified, right? To be beautified, you know, you, you, you kind of get out of bed and you're in your normal everyday average state, but then you begin to, you know, uh, wash your face and put on your makeup and put on your jewelry and put on your nice clothes. You are beautifying yourself. You are accentuating you know, yourself out of a normal sort of ordinary, ordinary everyday state into a, an elevated state. And that is similar to how we should think about glorification. That glorification is to, to step up out of that normal everyday ordinary state into something more dignified, something more royal, something more majestic. That's actually what we're going to see uh, in, in the life of this man named Mordecai this morning. Mordecai is glorified. Mordecai is elevated. Mordecai starts in the ashes. He starts in humiliation. But by the end, he is raised up in elevation, in glory. And so this morning, we're going to look at five important aspects of our glorification. Five important aspects of our glorification. First, our glorification is accomplished by God. Our glorification is is accomplished by God. Now we're going to look at uh, you know, the, whole, the whole passage, but for now, let's just start with verses 1 and 2. We'll read those again. <clears throat> Esther chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 say, on, the not, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So we got to, any chapter that starts like this, we always have to remember what happened in the chapter before. Where we left off in chapter 5 was Haman, the enemy to Mordecai, had just put up these gallows that he was going to have Mordecai killed on. These things are like 70 feet high. I mean, you can't miss these things. These things are, you know, shooting up in the sky. And he's actually planning to go in to talk to the king about having Mordecai killed. That's his plan. Haman, bad guy, going in to talk to the king to have Mordecai killed. But on this specific night, it just so happens that the king can't sleep. And when the king can't sleep, he reads uh, his, his books and he finds something important. But this kind of flow of events throughout the book of Esther uh, points at it, gets at the central truth to this whole book. What is Esther all about? What is the whole book of Esther trying to draw us into? The, the number one uh, theme, the, the most important aspect of this book is trying to teach us about the providence of God. See, as we're going to see in a moment, there are uh, these happenstances, these things that just so happen to just so happen in the perfectly right way. But what we see throughout the book of Esther is there's actually no such thing as a happenstance. That things don't just so happen to just so happen. There are not happenstances. There are simply God's purposes. So let's run through this. First of all, Esther just so happens to be chosen as the queen. But just after Esther is just so happens to be chosen as the queen, Mordecai overhears a plot between these two guys who want to kill the king. And the only reason that Mordecai is able to get the news to the king is because his 
adopted daughter, Esther, has been chosen queen. So Mordecai is able to tell her, but guess what? The king totally forgets about Mordecai. He doesn't honor him. He doesn't uh, thank him. He doesn't give him any sort of uh, pat on the back for saving his life. But it just so happens that years later, on the very night that Haman is planning to go in to ask the king to kill Mordecai, the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that of all the things that he, that he wants to do, he wants to read out of the memorable books, uh, the, the, the book of memorable deeds. And it just so happens that the one that they grab off the shelf and begin reading to the king reminds the king that Mordecai has saved his life. And so Haman has no idea. Haman's going in thinking he's going to have Mordecai killed. And so the king just so happens to allow him. He says, what do you think I should do for someone that I want to honor? And it just so happens that Haman has to happen to be full of himself. And so he begins to talk about what he would want done for himself, but he has no idea that it just so happens that moments earlier, the king has decided that he's going to honor Mordecai. And so as Haman begins to open his mouth, he's actually just digging his own grave. Guys, as you track these happenstances through the book of Esther, you realize there's no such thing as a happenstance. These are not just things that just so happen to happen and happen and happen, and it was just some string of coincidences. No, the providence of God teaches us that because God is the one ruling and governing this world, all those little things that to us seem like random events, those are actually God-ordained things that are bringing about God's purposes in this world. When we add up these happenstances, we realize that it's actually God's purpose. And here, particularly... In Esther chapter 6, God has a specific purpose. So as he's working, th- providentially working through all the events and all the decisions and all the things that are playing into this moment, God's purpose is to raise Mordecai up, is to elevate Mordecai, is to, again, in, in terms of our passage today, glorify Mordecai. But here's the temptation. The temptation that we face, all of us, is to, is to try to achieve glorification on our own. The temptation we face is to reach out and try to get that honor that we long for from the world around us rather than trusting God, rather than believing that he will be the one who will sovereignly bring it about. But listen to what uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Listen carefully. Peter says, and after after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, listen, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So let's not make the mistake of lunging after honor in our own strength. Let's not make the mistake of trying to fulfill that desire we have for respect and honor and glory from this world. And here's why. Because there is no amount of honor from this world. There's no amount of glory that you and I could rack up in this world that would actually fulfill us. I think we uh, probably understand this, uh, this truth. There are some honors in this world that are more satisfying than others. And there, are, there is some honor that comes from some people that is more satisfying to us than others. So, for example, um, let's say you've done some great things and you have some accolades in your life and, and, and everybody around you, they praise you, they think you're awesome, they think you hung the moon, except your parents. 
seems like you can never please your parents. And so, so even though everybody else around you respects you, everybody else around you honors you, but, but there's, there's these people in your life who you love so much and they don't respect you, you have a hard time enjoying the honor. Or sometimes it's the exact opposite. Sometimes the only people in your life who ever give you any respect or whoever honor you are your family, but the whole world around you disdains you. The whole world around you gives you a hard time. The whole world around you has zero respect for you. And it almost leads you to the point where you think, maybe my family's just lying to me. Maybe they're just telling me what they know I I need to hear to to keep going. See, some honor is worth more. Some honor is more satisfactory than other honor. And so here's what we have have to come face to face with. What would it mean? What would it mean to have all the honor in the world, but to not have the honor that comes from God? What would it mean to accumulate all the glory that this world has to offer, but then to get to the end of our life and not enter into the glory that God alone gives, that, that, that alone can satisfy our souls. So let's be cautious about trying to glorify ourselves rather than trusting God to glorify us. We've seen in 1 Peter 5.10 that he's promised it. God has promised it. If, if we're his, if we belong to him, he will usher us into glory. He will bring us into this honor. And so the question simply becomes, can we trust him? Can we trust his promise? Well, Esther chapter 6 is in the Bible to say, yes. Yes, you can trust that God will glorify you. You can trust that his honor will come for you in the end. You don't have to go running after your own glory. You don't have to try to rack up your own accolades. You don't have to try to force everybody in your life to respect you because God has promised that he will confirm, strengthen, and establish you when it's just the right time. So this leads to our next important aspect of our glorification. Second, this morning, our glorification follows our humiliation. Our glorification follows our humiliation. Now, we just want to look at verse 3. It says, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king has a bad night's sleep. He asks them to come in and read from this book of the memorable deeds. And they read about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. And so the king asks, you know, what do we do for this guy? Do we honor him? Do we thank him? Do we do any kind of special favors or gifts for, for this guy at all? And they're, they're like, no. And if you remember back to uh, chapters 2 and 3, I don't know, maybe some of you were around back earlier in Esther when we were going through chapters, chapters 2 and 3. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai saves the king's life. And so you kind of expect he's going to get a promotion, right? Like he's going to get elevated. He's going to get a, a step up in this life for doing something so nice for the king. But instead... As you turn from chapter 2 to chapter 3, not only does Mordecai not get elevated, but his enemy Haman gets elevated instead. Like imagine that you're going about your life and you do something really important for somebody. Like there's somebody that's really, really important and you go way out of your way to help them, to serve them, to do some favor for them. And in return, they do nothing. They don't thank you. They don't acknowledge you. They don't uh, kick back at you in any way. This is Mordecai. But what's worse, not only does he not get anything back from the king, but another person who he knows is not deserving, who he knows has not earned the right for the king to elevate, gets elevated instead of him. And oh, by the way, this guy Haman who gets elevated instead of Mordecai, he creates a plot to have Mordecai and all of his people killed. This is serious injustice. Now, we know, we know 
reading the story, that Mordecai is on the verge of glory. We know he's about to get exalted. We know there's about to be this wonderful twist in the story. But for a moment, we just need to pause and, 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 and consider that what, what came before his glory, what came before his exaltation was his humiliation. Year after year after year of not being acknowledged. And then where we find him in this story is in the ashes, weeping, mourning over the fact that there has been a decree from the king that he and all his people are going to be killed. So right up into the moment when he's raised up, he's as low as you can go. And in one sense, the whole story of the Bible can be explained through the lens of humiliation and honor. See, when God made human beings, he, he made us, and he put a unique distinguishing honor upon us. God placed dignity and honor upon the human beings he created, but every single one of us, we've turned from God. And in our turning from God, in our running away from him, we brought shame upon ourselves, and we brought shame down into this world. That is the story of this world, made for honor, made for glory, and yet we've exchanged that glory for that which is worthless, that which is empty, that which is meaningless. But listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says about Jesus, this one man, Jesus. Paul says this about Jesus. He says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So while all of us have turned from God and all of us have brought shame down upon our lives and shame down into this world, here's this one man, Jesus Christ, and he's the only one who actually had glory. He's the only one who actually had inerrant honor, and he was willing to go down. He lived this perfect life, and, and, and after living this perfect life, what he deserved was simply to just float up into glory forever and ever and ever, but instead, he chose to be our servant, and he chose to go solo that he would not only take on death, but he would take on death on a cross, which was the most embarrassing, the most shameful, the most disgusting way to die. And Paul reminds us, therefore, therefore, he says, therefore, because Jesus did this, because he went low, because he went down into our shame with us, God has exalted him. Jesus has earned eternal glory, and it's not like the glory of this world. There's something unique, something different about the glory that Jesus has, has earned for himself. Um, my junior year of high school, I went to Myrtle Beach High School. My, my junior year of high school, we won the state championship in football. Um, you know, it was this awesome thing. And, and, and what do you do when you win, this, win the state championship? You, you celebrate. You know, it's, it's awesome. And we all, we all got dressed up, and um, we, we went on a parade, and then we got to go to the state house and shake hands and, and take a, you know, a, a photo as a team. I mean, this is, this is what you do when you, when you win. You, 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 you revel in the glory. You, you embrace the honor. You... You, you saturate yourself in, in the celebration because of what you've done. But, but here's the only problem. Two weeks later, it kind of started to fade off when it was time to start practice again for the next season. And you kind of realize that, yeah, you know, there's, there's some excitement in, in earthly honor. There's some excitement in earthly glory, but, but it fades. And, and there's this feeling of needing to kind of guard it and hold on to it. And it's always elusive and it's always being eclipsed by the next great thing that, that somebody else does. But when Jesus rose from the grave, when Jesus conquered death 
God elevated him into a glory that would last forever. There's no next season for Jesus. There's no next place that he has to go to defend his honor. Jesus entered in to an echelon of glory that is eternal, that is forever. And if that's not good enough, if it's not good enough that Jesus achieved this glory, the Bible tells us that he didn't just do it for himself. See, this is what makes Jesus even more glorious, that in his own achieving glory, he was serving us. Last year, uh, we studied the book of Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and, 3 and 4, Paul talks about this dynamic of glory. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, those of us who, what we deserve is shame, what we deserve is embarrassment, what we deserve is to be set aside by God. If we place our trust in Jesus, we get grafted in to his eternal, sustained, forever glory. We get to share in his victory parade that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever, and there's no diminishing return. But here's the key. Our path, our path into that glory with Jesus, into that exaltation with Jesus, takes the same road that his took. That, yes, Jesus is in glory. Yes, he is exalted. Yes, he is high and lifted up. But he went through the cross to his glory. And that's what it means to be united to Jesus. We know that we are going to share in his forever glory for all eternity. But our path into that glory with him is in the shape of a cross. And that's why Esther chapter 6 is in the Bible. See, on, on the one hand, uh, through Mordecai, we see the humiliation we see the shame that comes with identifying with God. But then at the same time, we get to see through Mordecai the wonder of what it, what it means, the excitement of what it means to be raised up, to be lifted up, that there is, after humiliation, a glorification. So what this does for us is it shapes our lives now. See, we ask these questions, why is it, why is it, why is it that anyone would ever deny themselves and take up their cross daily? Why would anyone do that? Why is it that anybody would do their righteous deeds in secret rather than doing them for the praise of man, like Matthew talk, or that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6? Why would anybody do that? Why would you do your righteous deeds in secret instead of in public so that everybody could praise you? Why would you do that? Why else, instead of Pursuing a life that int intends to go up and up and up and up in this world, why would anybody sign up to say instead, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast that aside and I'm just going to lay my life out to be a servant for others. I'm going to lay my life out to put myself down on the altar for the sake of other people. Why would anybody sign up for that? The reason why is because there's a promise of glory afterwards. The reason why is, yes, Humiliation with Jesus may last a lifetime, but glory with Jesus lasts forever and ever and ever. So why can we be called in to the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the foolishness with Jesus? Because what is promised for us is so far eclipsing. That leads to our next important aspect of glorification. Third this morning. Our glorification will be a royal honor. Our glorification will be a royal honor. This is the most 
fun moment in the book of Esther, maybe in the whole Bible. So get ready to laugh and be excited. Verses 4 through 10, Esther chapter 6. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, uh, there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought out, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This is hilarious. <laughs> Haman goes in thinking that he's going to have Mordecai killed, and he leaves having to trot Mordecai around the city, proclaiming before everyone how great Mordecai is. Guys, if, if our vision of God is that he is some curmudgeonly old man up in heaven who doesn't want anybody to have fun, just read Esther chapter 6. This is comedy. This is amazing. This is in God's Bible. This is outstanding. Haman is such a doofus. <laughs> and he's so full of himself. He just can't imagine that the king would care about anybody else. And yet, here he is. I mean, can you imagine how utterly deflated? I mean, put yourself in the situation when the king says, go do so to Mordecai. I mean, you just want to, you know, dig a hole and just bury yourself in it at that point. You know, it's, this is rough. Here's what we're seeing. Listen, guys, this book is about God's providence. It's about how God is the author of history. It's about how there are no happenstances. And here's what we're even seeing, that God is even working through the pride the foolishness, and the anger of Haman to exalt Mordecai. Listen, this idea about Mordecai's royal expression of gratitude from the king, it's not even the king's idea. God is so good that he allows Haman to come up with the idea that then glorifies Mordecai. This is God's providence. This is how he works in our world. So what are we seeing in this episode why are we able to look at this story? Why am I saying as we read through this story that this is somehow a picture of our glorification? How do we make sense of this? Well, here's what we know. At the end of history, God has made us promises. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen. God has told us, here's what's going to happen in the end. And one of the things that God has been very clear about that's going to happen as the end, in the end is that all of his people who have identified with Jesus, who have gone all in with Jesus, and they've been humiliated and ashamed and embarrassed, and they've been labeled foolish for staking their whole lives on Jesus Christ. At the end, God is going to raise them up. God is going to give them honor and glory at the end. And there's going to be this great reversal that happens. Here's what we can't expect. Here's what we cannot count on. We cannot expect that that reversal is going to happen in this lifetime. We cannot expect that if I cling to Jesus and if I go all in and if I 
share everything I am with him and I surrender my whole life to him, that he's going to somehow make my life go up, 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 up in this world. We cannot expect that. That's not what Esther chapter 6 is about. But here's God's goodness. That sometimes what God does is he takes something from that future, something that's from that end, that, that great reality that, that, that all our hope is invested in, and he implants it into the present. He grabs from that future reality, and he causes it to have an intrusion in, in the present. Why? That you and I might be able to get a tangible picture of what it's going to feel like when after suffering with Jesus, after embracing the humiliation and the embarrassment and the foolishness of the gospel, God turns the tables and we receive glory. God sometimes takes something from the end and he implants it into the, the present so that we can taste of what's coming. Uh, here's a way to think about this. On Saturday morning, if my wife Allie were to uh, bake a cake, and I'm talking about you know this big, beautiful, delicious cake, and everybody in our house, I mean, we just... We're foaming at the mouth to eat this cake. And we, we start to, me and Benjamin start to make moves towards this cake. And all of a sudden, Allie comes in and she says, Stop, 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 stop. That cake is for later. That's not for right now. You got to wait. That thing's, that, you're going to enjoy it, but it's not till later. That's for tonight. And on top of that, uh, not only are we going to not eat the cake, but you guys have chores to do. And so uh, Benjamin and I basically fall out in despair because that's all we wanted was a slice of cake. And now we're doing, now we're scrubbing the floors and stuff. But um, by the way, Allie never does that. So. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a made-up story. So here we are, me and Benjamin, we're scrubbing the floors, we're working hard, we're, we're, you know, we're busting out these chores, and then all of a sudden, around the corner, Allie comes with these two little tiny pieces of cake, and she says, guys, you're doing such a good job, I just see how hard you're working to get prepared for tonight, and I, the, cake, the cake's really for later, it's not for now, but I just, I want you to have a taste, I want you to just experience a little bit of it now, so that it'll keep you going, and so we sit there, and we, we, we eat our two bites, and we just, oh, it just goes in, and you're just, you're so excited, you know that later that night, you are going to stuff your face full of that cake, but for right now, just a little taste is enough, it's enough to encourage you to keep going, to encourage you to have hope that, that what you're going to experience later is worth the, the hard work. It's worth what, what you're doing in the moment. And this is what we're seeing in Esther chapter 6. We can't expect in this life that the, the roles are going to be reversed. We can't expect in this life to experience the honor and glory that comes from God. But every once in a while, God takes something from the end and he, he implants it into the present that we might be able to see just how good he is, that we might be able to dr be drawn towards the hope of our future with him. And something like Esther chapter 6 is a perfect example of that. God raises up Mordecai from the ashes. In one sense, this doesn't actually affect the story of Esther. Like if you're tracking along, there is a decree from the king over their heads that all the Jews are going to die. So up to this point, even after Mordecai is raised up, for all we know, he's going to turn around and be killed. We have no idea. We have no idea what's going to happen yet in this story. But here God is. He's giving us a little taste, a little picture, a little symbol of the future. But in reality, what makes this uh, passage so strong is that um, first and foremost, even more than it is a picture of our glorification, this is a picture of the glorification of Jesus. See, Jesus is similar to Mordecai in that Jesus enters into shame and humiliation just like Mordecai. But something's a little different. Jesus doesn't just come close to death. Jesus actually enters all the way in. Jesus goes in and he dies under this shameful, awful, gruesome death for sinners like us. But then God raises him from the dead. God exalts him and God seats him on the throne in heaven. 
And Esther chapter 6 is this picture for us. It's a picture for you and me that anybody who puts their trust and faith in Jesus, anyone who is in Christ, guys, listen to this. We get to sit on the throne with Jesus. Jesus shares his crown with us. The Bible says that we actually will rule and reign with Jesus. This is outstanding. But what does this mean for right now? Well, uh, I want to read from Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here's, here's the key. And, and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this means that while in one sense we await our future public vindication, we, we await that moment like, you know, Mordecai got to trot around the city in front of everybody and, and they, they got to see that he really was an honorable person. We have to await that public presentation like Mordecai got. But even now, the Bible says, if we've put our trust in Jesus, we are right now because of our union with Christ seated in the heavenly places. This is the secret of Christianity. That, that you and I, though we are here, though we are walking out our days in this life according to the way of the cross, we are even now by faith already seated in heaven with Jesus. And what this means, guys, is that the, the point of our life, the goal of our life, isn't to go out and achieve honor. The goal of our life isn't to go out and try to earn honor. We go out and live our lives knowing that we've already been given the greatest honor we could ever be given by being found in Jesus Christ, the one who has been lifted up, raised up, and exalted to the highest heavens. We are seated with Christ now. And that changes everything. It changes everything because it means our whole life is not this audition wherein we hope we do good enough that God might somehow at the end welcome us in. That's not Christianity. Christianity is we put our faith in Jesus and he does everything for us and then we get to party with him forever and ever and ever. That's Christianity. But That leads to our next important aspect of glorification. So fourth, our glorification turns the tables. Our glorification turns the tables. Verses 11 and 12 say, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai re returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Now up to this point, if you've been tracking with the book of Esther, you know that Haman thinks he's in control. Haman thinks that he has power in this world. Haman thinks that he is the captain of his ship and the master of his fate. But in one instance, God rips back the illusion and Haman learns that he's not in control, that he doesn't actually have power, that he's actually not the one who will write the story of his life as quickly as Haman has gone up. I mean, he's as high as you can go. He's the right-hand man of the king. And in an instant, the illusion is pulled back and he is plummeted down into the dust. He goes home mourning with his head covered. 
One day earlier, Mordecai had his head covered in shame, mourning. The next day, here's Haman, head covered, ashamed, embarrassed. The worst possible thing has happened to him. Uh, that is until we get to next week. Just as quickly has gone, as Haman has gone up, God has brought him down. And this is the reality, guys. We're not in control. The power we think we have, it's not real. The pride in our accomplishments, it's an illusion. Um, one of my favorite film scenes of all times comes from the movie The Help. Now, I do want to warn you, um, this scene does contain an expletive, and it is gross, but it is wonderful. It is, it's worth whatever offense uh, I might make right now. I think it's worth it. There's these two characters. Uh, one's named Minnie. Minnie is an African-American maid who uh, serves at this house with the other character in this scene whose name is Hilly. Hilly is a rude kind of employer who, who uh, is over Minnie. And in this one particular scene, Minnie goes to Hilly's house, apparently seemingly there to apologize, and she brings with her a peace offering of a pie. But what Hilly doesn't know is that Minnie has actually put her excrement in the pie. Hilly begins to eat it, and she finds it delicious. She even goes so far as to ask, what do you put in this pie? It is amazing. But then in an instant, Minnie tells her that she has put her excrement in the pie. And from, in one instant, she goes from deliciously devouring the pie to running to the toilet to vomit. All it took was for her to rip back the illusion, to reveal what was really going on, and it changed everything. And that's exactly what happens to Haman. He is just feasting on his own pride. He is feasting on his power and control and his ability to go up and up and up in this world. And in an instant, the illusion is ripped back and he realizes that the pie he's eating isn't what he thought it was. That the glory and the honor and the reverence that he's built up for himself in this world, it was actually worthless. And guys, that is what God is going to do, not just in this one small chapter in the Bible, that is what God is going to do for the course of this entire world. That, it, that at a moment, God is going to rip back the illusion and we're all going to see the filthiness of the world for what it really is. That running after the honor and glory of this world was not actually leading us to a place of success and achievement, that it was actually leading us to a place of destruction. Uh, there's this psalm that I love, Psalm 73. Uh, it's a psalm about somebody who's wrestling with, with the hard reality of life. On the one hand, uh, the, the person in, in Psalm 73, they're looking out at everyone who's not following God, people who could care less about God. And what he sees is that their lives just seem to get better and better and better and better. And then he's looking at his own life and he's saying, I've, I've grabbed onto the Lord. I've, I've clung for dear life to God and my life just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So that's the situation of Psalm 73. I want to read a little bit of it to you. We, we actually already heard some of it read here this morning in our, our worship time. Psalm 73, uh, verses 2 and 3 say, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's saying, I looked around and my heart almost slipped. I almost looked out into the world of people who don't follow God. And I saw that their lives were going up and up and up. And, and like there was a piece of me that really wanted that. There was a piece of me that was willing to say, maybe, maybe me trusting God and me worshiping God, it's not worth it. Maybe I need to run after these other things like these other people. He was this close to slipping. But then down in verses 16 and 17, Psalm, Psalm 73, 16 and 17, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So the psalmist is struggling with life. Life doesn't make sense to him. Why do the people who don't follow God, who don't trust God, who could care less about God, seem to be going up and up and up in this world? And why do the people who cling to God and love God and worship God, why do they seem to be going down, down, down in this world? It doesn't make sense to him until he goes to church. He goes to church, and at church, God gives him a picture of the end, he says. He gets a revelation of what happens at the end of the story, right? And what happens at the end of the story reshapes everything for him. Here's what he, here's what he sees. Psalm 73, verses 18 through 20. Here's what he sees. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So let's, let's think about Haman for a second. In, in, in the language of Psalm 73, here's Haman. <laughs> He's built this amazing life. He's gone up and up and up. He has all the power and control in the world. He has the power to walk into the king and say, I want to kill this ethnic group. And the king says, great, sounds good. Let's sit down and have drinks. That's the kind of power that Haman thinks that he has in this world. And then in an instant, it's ripped away. The ground that he thought was so steady, it all of a sudden became a slip and slide. This world that he had built around himself, all the accomplishments that he's so proud of, everything he boasted about back in chapter 5, about how great he was and about great his sons were and about all the great accomplishments that he's ever done in this world, in an instant, it's as if he wakes up from a dream to realize none of it was real. It was all an illusion. This world is not what we think it is. But I think more importantly... In Psalm 73, the psalmist doesn't just see the end of those who don't trust God, of those who don't worship God, of those who don't put their hope in God. He also sees the end of those who do trust God, of those who cling to God, of those whose only hope is God. In Psalm 73, verses 23 and 24, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Here, here's the key. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, afterward, you will receive me to glory. The psalmist saw his future. He saw that, yes, there might be humiliation now, and that humiliation may last a lifetime, but then afterwards, it's eternal glory. It is the forever, forever, and ever victory parade. And he sees that God will certainly turn the tables. I want to tell you a story that um, I think will demonstrate how practical this is. You know, we're talking about big things. These are grand things. I mean, we're talking about eternal glory here. We're talking about suffering with Jesus. I mean, these are, this, this, is, this is not light stuff. I don't know what you came here today to church for, but this is not, we're not talking about, uh, you know, light stuff, right? Um, 
This is serious stuff. But at the same time, it applies so specifically into the nitty-gritty of our lives. And I want to tell you this story because it shows how this reality, getting down into our bones and soaking into our hearts, it actually changes really small things. Something, something as small as field hockey. Uh, this is from the book The J-Curve by uh, author Paul Miller. The J-Curve by author Paul Miller. And he tells a story about his daughter. He writes, I enjoyed watching my sisters and then my daughters play field hockey. When my youngest daughter, Emily, was in the 11th grade, she and her friend were benched. The word on the team was that the coach was playing favorites. Neither Emily nor I enjoyed this. I ran into another parent at the gym during all this, and she said, I can't believe what the coach is doing with Emily and her friend. I said, I'm actually thankful Emily has this low-level suffering on my watch. Life is much more like sitting on the bench than starring in the game. I can still see the shock on the mom's face. It was like she had met a Martian. While our children played hockey at the same Christian school, in that moment, this mom and I were living in separate worlds. For that reason, when Emily encountered suffering, I was disappointed but not devastated and even thankful for an opportunity for her to be drawn into Jesus. My thankfulness startled this mom. It seemed strange to her. Now, to be clear, I didn't want Emily on the bench because it was good for her. I wanted resurrection. I didn't know the shape or timing of resurrection, but I knew God would hear my prayers for my daughter. God had helped me so many times that hope had become a habit. So in the midst of a confusing situation, I had clarity I knew the story Emily and I were in, Jesus' story. I knew where she was in that story, dying. And I knew the outcome, some kind of resurrection. Clarity calms the soul. The mom who looked at him like he was a Martian, her goals, her vision for this life. We're all oriented around the honor and glory and achievement that comes from this world. But because Paul Miller's heart had been steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Paul Miller knew that, that God has a plan to turn the tables, God has a plan to, to, to turn shame into honor, humiliation into glory, his goals were set by a different reality. He knew that the story he was living in wasn't just a story about field hockey. The story he was living in was about the honor and glory that comes from God. And because his heart was set by the gospel, he was able to interpret his disappointments totally differently, radically differently than somebody else. So when we're tempted to ask, why would I live like this? Why would I believe this? Why would I lay down my cross and deny myself? Why would I do my righteous deeds in secret rather than for the praise of man? Why would I pursue a life of service rather than to pursue a life that goes up and up and up and up in this world? Why would I do this? Well, first, we look at a, a chapter like Esther chapter 6, and we see what God is about. We see that God will certainly, according to his sovereign plan, in his timing, and according to his providence, raise his people up. But more importantly, more importantly, we soak our heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has, God has turned the tables nowhere as wonderfully as he has in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus.
And that leads to our last aspect of glorification. Finally, this morning, our glorification has a forerunner. Our glorification has a forerunner. Uh, we'll finish this morning with verse 13. It says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What we learn about Mordecai in verse, in verse 13 is that Mordecai is sort of this prophetic sign of something greater that's about to happen. Remember I told you, what happens here in chapter 6, it's really inconsequential to the rest of the book of Esther. There's still that death warrant hanging over the, the heads of Mordecai and all his people. For all we know, in the next chapter, they're all going to get slaughtered. We have no idea. But it's actually Haman's wife who picks up on the fact that what has happened to Mordecai is a prophetic picture of the future. That if God has begun to uh, turn the fortunes of, of Mordecai, if God has raised up Mordecai out of the ashes and brought him into glory, and at the same time taken Haman out of his high horse, his power, his control, his illusion of pride, and brought him down into the dust, then that is simply a sign of what is to come. That if this is what God has done for Mordecai, then it, it will certainly be what God will do for the rest of his people. And see, guys, this is exactly where you and I find ourselves. We find ourselves in the exact same situation. We know we've been promised glory. We know we've been promised the honor that comes from God. And yet now where we find ourselves is a life shaped by the cross. Right now what we find is entering in with Jesus met with humiliation, shame, foolishness. Guys, the gospel is foolish. We believe that God's eternal son came into this world, became a human, like grew up as a little baby, became a human, lived a perfect life, and then died on a cross in the place of sinners. And then guess what? By the way, three days later, we believe he got up out of the grave. And if that's not, if that's not weird enough, we actually think he's going to come back. The gospel is foolish. It is silly, unless it is true. And if it's true, it is the most wonderful thing this world has ever heard. And so we are called now to enter in to this fellowship of suffering with Jesus, this foolishness with Jesus, this shame and humiliation with Jesus. And so what do we do? Well, we keep our eyes on him who has already been raised. More than that, who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. We have a forerunner. Jesus Christ has already gone through the cross, gone through the grave, and is now seated in the glory that will last forever and ever. This is why Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through, 1 through 3 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Guys, God knows, God knows that we are prone to weariness. God knows that entering into humiliation and shame and suffering with Jesus, it's not natural. It does not feel good. And so the Bible comes alongside and it says, look, 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 look. Take your eyes off of your circumstances. Take your eyes off of those things that are discouraging you and fix your eyes on Jesus because he's already gone into glory. And where he is, there you shall be also. Fix your eyes on Jesus that you might not grow weary, that you might not lose heart. Jesus is already there. He's our forerunner. So I just want to leave you with this. In this life, if we pursue 
the honor, the glory, the success that comes from this world, we might, we might get it. But in a flash, in a moment, it's going to be like waking up from a dream and realizing that it was all an illusion. It was all meaningless. It was all worthless. But if we identify with Jesus, if we put our faith in him, if we say yes to the shame, the humiliation, the foolishness of the gospel, then God promises that we will enjoy the honor and glory from him with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Life is so hard. Suffering is so hard. Humiliation is so hard. Shame is not what we want. And so, God, we kick, we kick away from it. And so, God, I just pray that you would turn our hearts, that we might actually see the shame and the suffering with Jesus as a badge of honor that we might see going all the way in with Jesus and taking up a life that is marked by the cross as our greatest glory in this life. Lord, change our hearts. Set our eyes on the future. More, more than that, Lord, more than setting our eyes on the future, set our eyes on Jesus, the one who has gone before us, the one who, yes, died for us in humiliation, but then was raised for us in glory. God, fix our eyes on him. Fix our hearts on him. And then, Lord... Lead us to worship you, seeing that if you took people like us up from our shame, up from the ashes, out of the humiliation of our sin, and you were willing, through the death and resurrection of your own son, to bring us to glory with you, God, then you are amazing. You deserve all the honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Lord, we will cast our crowns down at your feet because you are so good. So, Lord, we just ask you to lead us Lead us to a vision of life where all we care about is to lay everything down before you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.